Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Peter Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined as usual by my MMU journalism colleague, Dave Porter. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. And by Jeremy Craddock. Afternoon, Jez. Hi, Pete. And we also have a new voice on the mic today, another member of the journalism team, Andy Dickinson. Hello, Andy. Hello. Welcome to Bang to Rights. Uh, tell us, why are you here today? Well, why is anybody here? It's Brexit. It is it? Brexit. <laughs> it is Brexit. But before you switch off, thinking, oh, I've heard all of that before, we do actually have some stuff which you'll almost definitely won't have heard before. From voices at the People's Vote demo in London at the weekend to a rigorous assessment of how many people were actually <laughs> there. From the person who tackled Donald Trump's inflated numbers at Inauguration Day. And we'll also have a deep dive from all of us here in the, in the staff room, actually, we're not in the studio, but here in the staff room, into what Brexit will mean for journalism after exit day, whenever that actually is. But first, let's hear from <coughs> some of those at that referendum demo on Saturday. What did people there think of how Brexit has been covered in the media? Radio 4, for example, regularly on Today programme tends to only give the uh, pro-Brexit options. It's incredibly difficult to work out who's being biased and why they're being biased um, and for those people who aren't particularly politically motivated in the first instance yeah, it can be very very confusing. Newspaper coverage has been firstly very biased and secondly very much concerned with the British politics and not looking at the point of view of uh, the EU and the other member states. <laughs> Some voices there from the People's March vote, and thanks to our colleague Ellie Shember Critchley for recording those for us. Now, Dave Jez. How many people were there? What do you think? Well, the figures were saying it was a million, but uh, I know we're going to have that figure challenged very shortly. Yeah, just uh, hold out. Dave, I mean, what, what sort of figures have we seen around in, in the media for Gosh, this? it's gone way of the extremes, hasn't it? So it's very difficult to say. It reminded me, actually, of uh, that old adage which you gave to young journalists who, when you're covering marches, of, you know, standing for a minute and then seeing how many people pass you, and you can, on that basis roughly calculate how many is in a march or demonstration. That's quite easy when, you know, it's quite a small town demonstration. When it's a huge one, you know, going through the centre of London, that's obviously impossible. Yeah, um, yeah. But maybe with some kind of drone well, actually, you're counter. onto something there, because that's on. one of the things that we will come on to. But I, I suppose one of the other things, one of the other clichés was take the organiser's number, take the police number, and yeah. take, the, take mm. the middle point get between the two. Get sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, there is this view that it's now possible to get much, much more reliable statistics about all yeah. of this stuff so I was keen to get a more authoritative figure if there was one available because actually verification is one of those issues that critics say has just been knocked for six out of the Brexit debate so I spoke earlier this week to Keith Still he's professor of crowd science here at MMU. People overestimate crowds all the time we had um, a recent article uh, just at uh, New Year for uh, the Washington Post where uh, the mayor in New York was saying that they got two million people in Times Square. It's only eight and a half thousand square meters. So you can't get two million people yeah. in that space. So so we get this all the time. I mean, we did the account for the Eagles parade where the same team that did last year's uh, Brexit count, where we had, I think, 10 of us working on that one in real time, 700,000 people for that one, but they claimed 3.2 million. 
you can't physically get 3.2 million people on an eight kilometer route. So yeah. we only had a four kilometer route for the Brexit march. So in essence, um, people blow these numbers completely out of proportion. And what we teach is the reality of doing a, an area by area, section by section density count. Um, it takes a bit of time. If we're doing this in real time and we're set up with the right vantage points, we would generally use what's called a ramp analysis. We look at the routes, the areas. The most important thing is the movement over time, how quickly those, that space is filling. That gives us a clear indication of what the event's going to look like as it unfolds. And so we, it's, it's a bit like if, if, if people are on the march, for example, it's a bit like checking water pressure. The, the, speed, yeah. the, the, the speed and the, the width of the pipe, the diameter of the pipe, will, will allow you to say what the maximum water passing through that point is. Yeah. You know, that's a very good analogy. Uh, I'm going to steal that because <laughs> it's a great, a great way of describing it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I would tend to refer it in crowd flow, but what we can do is that we see the way that people are moving, the flow past the line, and that can tell us the density. So from flow, you can get density, density can come flow. Water doesn't compress. So it's a good analogy. Of course, it, it breaks down from the fact is that a crowd can compress. It yeah. can stop and the density can increase. Yeah. But that's a very good analogy. Yes, but I, so I, how I, does it, if, if, for example, you've got people on a march and then yep. there may be other people coming to the, like the main rally point, for example, by getting off a tube or coming off on buses or whatever, yep. um, do, does your methodology take account for that, for other people just coming to a rally rather than doing the whatever it is, four kilometers of a march? Absolutely. We take spot. We have the BBC and ITV and I think Associated Press video, the helicopter flyover yeah. at the start and the middle and at the end. So you look at those three and you say to yourself, at no point in time did the density in these areas or the overall occupancy exceed a factor. And I'll, I'll be hesitant in putting that factor into play because we haven't done the full analysis yet. So in, in, in effect, that takes into account those people joining the march. What I've had on Twitter is them saying, oh, a lot of people joined and then left. Hang on a second. You mean they came all the way to London and they didn't stay for the march? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and this uh, this phrase, many, well, what does that mean? More, more than a few, less than plenty? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, we, we tend to work with numbers. So area, uh, flow rates, the pressure, as you state quite rightly in terms of that analogy, is a very good one. So, so we look at multiple factors. Movement over time is generally the more accurate method of assessing a moving crowd. At the moment, we just had those video footage. I was asked to make an estimate. Um, I gave what we'd normally do is what we call a, a rough cut or first pass approximation. That then gives us a clear idea of the, the, the boundaries, the upper and lower limits that we're generally working with. And in practice, when we've done these uh, throughout the years, it's generally in that lower third of the that boundary condition that we, we get our final count. But, you know, it's it's ongoing. Um, I'm staying off of Twitter. I'm not replying to anything at the moment because um, the nutters are coming out of the woodwork. Well, I wanted to ask, I, I'm not going to ask you directly about that, but this whole business of verification, I mean, it's big right across journalism at the moment. And, you know, we, we, we'll, I'll, I'll put a link into the full fact investigation into this, which is where 
where your name came up initially earlier on today. I'm, I'm recording earlier in the week. Um, well, I've, but, I've just sent that, a but, analysis but, in depth to fullfacts.org. Yeah, but that whole business about verification, it means like people like yourself are kind of a, increasingly in, in the firing line for saying this is actually scientifically what went on rather yep. than your political estimation about what's going on. How important do you think it is to stick up for that kind of scientific point of view on things like this rather than get distracted by by whatever people are saying on social media or the politics well, think, behind a big demonstration like this? Sure. I think it's essential that uh, that we have accurate fact-checking. And uh, what we found after we did the Trump inauguration count was that we were starting to get death threats and, and all manner of stupidness coming out and fake news and accusations. When we did the Eagles count, again, we had 10 people working on that in real time. They claimed 3.2 million, but we counted and can verify 700,000. So we, we work on verifiable facts, which I'm a little bit cautious on this one, because I was asked by a reporter when I was actually at a Jasper Carrot concert, <laughs> you know, what's your estimate for it? And I said, I'll get back to you tomorrow. We had a look at the video and overnight, a couple of my Australian students had actually done an estimate. I checked what the, their basis was for their calculations. Uh, confirmed it. We've had a long discussion on the scientific methodology on our own uh, university forums. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't publish information until we had checked it, cross-checked it and verified it. What's happened in the moment is, is this social media amplification. Uh, somebody asked me a question, what would you estimate? How would you estimate? And I said, here's an estimate. Uh, they've then shredding that without any support of their methodologies. So, uh, you know, we have one guy, I think, saying it's 1.9 million because I've counted it on video using software that I use to track ants. Well, I, I'm not sure what scale he's working to, but it's four kilometers long, 156,000 square meters of occupied space. And I, I guess you might get 1.9 million ants in there, but I'm not sure if that software really is suitable for this kind of count from that kind of video feed. So, you know, it's all verifiable. So as a scientist, we, we like to check, verify, then double check our results. At the moment, I'm just responding to uh, what seems to be a, a media field day uh, or rather a social media field day, because I don't you know, I've had a couple of professors actually ask for methodology, which we've sent them, uh, you know, respectfully. How do you do this? I'm really interested. Here's our methodology. But the social media seems to be uh, dragging out what I think the phrase is trolls. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at um, in, in the rest of the podcast. So, um, Keith, I know you're really busy, but thanks very much indeed for, for coming on Bank to Rights to talk about it. It's been really fascinating. Thanks a lot for, for coming on. And we will put links into to relevant documents and materials uh, in, the, in the show notes. Thanks very much indeed. Very happy to help. Thanks for calling. Professor Keith Still, thanks very much for him for doing that earlier in the week because actually he was on his way off to Canada for a, a, a conference, I think, over there and managed to squeeze him in before he jumped on the plane. So thanks very much for him for doing that. A reminder, you're listening to Bang to Rights from the MMU Journalism Unit. You can tweet us at RightsBang with any comments. Do you think verification has been demoted by Brexit? How can we turn off the kind of trawling that, that Keith basically spoke about there? And can we salvage scientific expertise and separate that from opinion? Now, Andy, your gripe today is about opinion, isn't it? Yeah, I have a gripe about something most days, Pete. But yeah, for the most part, it is about opinion. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's been slowly creeping up on us over the years as we move from 
kind of in, move into the online space. It's that idea of the impact that some of the quite unfounded and quite um, unsolicited opinion that's starting to appear, not from social media users, but from actually within journalism organisations and what impact that's having on journalists in those news organisations. I mean, it's often frustrating just as a journalism lecturer to have to go into a class knowing that on Twitter that day or on Facebook or in the conversation, somebody's done something stupid in journalism, somebody's hacked a phone mm -hmm. or stuff like that. And that's frustrating when you're trying to tell people about the kind of ethics and the rules and the regs that we follow in journalism. But increasingly, I've started to worry a little bit about what impact it's having on people within newsrooms. You know, so mm -hmm. when the Daily Mail does run um, you know, video of somebody shooting somebody and gets rightly panned for that, what are the individual journalists in the newsroom feeling about that? How are they feeling mm. supported? How are they feeling like that the journalism that they do that they think is making a change? You know, that's being undermined. And likewise, you know, we know around opinion, you know, this guy's getting trolled for scientific opinion around crowds. What every day we know that journalists are getting attacked for their views. And I don't and think stuff like this doesn't help. So when I see, you know, uh, you're commissioning Donald Trump Jr to put a, um, a, a thinly veiled attack on left-wingers in your newspaper. Not only do we have to think about what that does to the debate more generally, although you'd hopefully think it was rightly written off, but what does that do to the people in the newsroom when they see that being held up as the kind of journalism that you do? And that's really hard, I think. Because mm -hmm. we, we have a lot of that here. We've had a lot of it during Brexit. So the Daily Mail has been getting um, columns from Jacob Rees-Mogg, Daily Telegraph, obviously, a bit of a, it's a mouthpiece for, for uh, Boris Johnson. And, you know, there are other outlets that are, oh. that are using... Um, politicians and, and opinion formers as rather than journalists to, to fill their pages. And, and it's always been the case. I mean, I'm sure we'd all know that, you know, particularly in newspapers, paying pundits to come in, you mm. know, the ex-footballer from your local football team will come in and write the column for you. Mm. We know that particularly as we move into online, there are a lot of diminishing returns. There's a lot of national papers <laughs> that are no longer paying the big names to do their columns for them, particularly online, they're paying the people who've got the followers, the what you mm. know, what we now call influencers. Mm. But there, there seems to be this holdover that you know we'll pay somebody like Boris Johnson to, mm. I won't use his phrase, but to spread his opinion all over mm. the page. And actually, mm. you've got to ask where the value for that is, because increasingly, mm. in in a world where advertisers are getting more sensitive to this stuff, are you really going to get two hundred and fifty thousand pounds or whatever he gets mm. paid? of advertising against him or are you going to start losing advertising and losing subscribers mm -hmm. and losing reputation because we're not thinking about what more broadly that impact has so i mean i don't know whether the day of the celebrity columnists has had its day you know and we need to think a little bit more about that but genuinely it seems very uncritical at the moment and as i say i do worry particularly in a world where we live in a fake news and journalists are attacked every day for being the so-called experts and often in the worst possible way and in other countries, in with extreme prejudice, you know, there are journalists dying or being arrested on the basis of people mm. agreeing or disagreeing with what they say. That we set a really dangerous precedent by not being more critical and editorially sound about the stuff that we commission. Mm. I'm going to break in for just a second to remind <laughs> listeners that we're, we're next to a big construction site at the moment here at MMU because they're building our new humanities building next door. Oh. So. That intrusion is um, probably one of the cement lorries or something. It's not just the rest of you backing away from yeah. my opinion there, is it? It's yeah, real people doing real work. Real people as doing as actual as work. To it's probably, cement, probably cement for the new radio studio, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but coming back to the Brexit debate in particular, um, mm -hmm. 
Is this kind of distortion that Andy's talking about, has that accelerated during the last two and a bit years, two and a half years? I think, you know, if you, any students listening to this should think about Clause 1, IPSO, and the injunction to separate fact and comment. Mm. And I think that taps into a wider debate about media literacy and in these times of heightened political tension, you know, um, it becomes more and more melded. So for a reader, mm. how do you separate what is a story or comment or a fact? And that's increasingly difficult. And we should always kind of hang on to that, you know. And, of course, newspapers have a great long tradition of campaigning journalism and fantastically being able to say what they like and, you know, will the last person voting for Labour please turn the light off? That's all well and good. But, you know, when that strays away from obviously defined comment into mm. insidious kind of weaving into what, you you know, the reader thinks are or hopes to be really informed stories, um, that's problematic for everyone. I think the, in, in the past, before the internet, the demarcation of what was opinion and what was, um, you know, objective reporting was a lot clearer. And I think people reading newspapers understood that. But these days, in the age of the echo chamber and online and certainly the way a lot of reporting is written online where opinions do seep in it it's very hard for people to uh, distinguish really and now people think that they can offer an opinion and think it will be accepted as fact you know i think i think brexit has just intensified everything really um, mm. and people have become a lot more entrenched in their views and divided it just amplifies that whole echo chamber and landscape, really. Yeah, and it's not just newspapers, of course, because mm. one of the other areas, I mean, Question Time, for example, on BBC mm. One is, a, is a, a prime example of that. I mean, it's always been a bit of a bear pit, mm. but I think during the Brexit period, it's almost become... It's almost become a mirror of some of that debate that's going on and mm. really inflammatory stuff that's going on. Yeah. I, I was listening to the Talking Politics uh, podcast this morning. There was somebody on there who'd been on Question Time and she said that they had a kind of warm-up question with the audience mm. and people were kind of a bit restrained and very civil mm. and, and so on. And as soon as the cameras went on, people just went completely mm. over the top and mm. she said there were two strong, break, very vocal Brexit supporters right in the centre of the audience, mm. right in Fiona Bruce's eye line, and they completely dominated yeah. things, and they became the kind of ringmasters for for that side of the debate. And so um, there are other programmes, I guess, like that, mm. which are, on, on the face of it, meant to be reflecting public opinion and so on, but actually... Yeah. They, they become fairly toxic because the model yeah. doesn't really work in this environment. I think the good manners have has gone out of, you know, uh, debates and public discourse, hasn't it, really? You know, I think Brexit has, has contributed to that. But there's a carelessness, isn't there, about that, mm. that general tone of debate mm. that actually, you know, journalists and editor, editors in particular should be taking that, that, that step back and saying, you know, how much am I contributing to people's understanding of this mm. stuff and how much am I contributing to the general tone of the debate? And I think that's been lost a little bit. Mm. And, you know, and I agree with Dave. I think you know, internally there will be journalists who will be looking at the output of their publications, whether that's in print, online or in broadcast, and looking at things like Ipso and just going, I can't, I can't see that. Oh, I can't yeah. see what I'm trying to uphold every day mm. in the material that's appearing online. Mm. And it's not helped, I think, now that we live... I'm, I don't, I'm not sure whether I would agree that we've ever understood that demarcation mm. between comment and whatever, but it's certainly more blurred. You know, if Boris mm. Johnson can write MP, buffoon and journalist in his job description, 
know, mm. he's calling himself a journalist. Mm. What he writes, he will claim to be journalism, mm. as lots of mm. people do. Mm. And when you're a journalist sat in a newsroom going, well, people think Boris Johnson's a journalist and I'm a journalist. Do people think mm. I'm like Boris Johnson? Yeah. Or any of the other mm. kind of people that <clears> are out there. And mm. I think it doesn't help set that demarcation mm. when you're consistently undermined by your own publication yeah. often yeah. in terms of trying to set a tone for what good journalism should be. I don't know what the solution no. to that is, but you would no. hope that within organisations that claim to have that trust mm. and their big mm. names and you know are not fake news, mm. that somebody would be taking that a little bit more seriously. Mm. Maybe a stronger regulator. Yeah. Who knows? Well, you look at the way uh, broadcasters are regulated and they're kind of the way Ofcom regulates opinion on, you know, on TV and radio, maybe that's what's needed with, with print, you know. Well, it, we're, we're living through a pretty toxic environment mm. politically as well as sort of editorially and stuff. Um, do you think it's going to calm down or is the genie just out of the bottle? Will it calm down once politics calms down, once this debate, whatever way it goes, once the political debate's settled? either with another referendum or with no deal or with a general election or whatever. But will people, can people go back now to where we were before? It's difficult, I think, you know, who knows how long Brexit may go on for. Um, we've seen... Because it was meant to finish tomorrow, wasn't it? That's, well, that's the yeah. reason why we decided to yeah. do this today, was because tomorrow, this is meant to be Brexit it's Eve. It's been commissioned it? for a new series, hasn't it? <laughs> Brexit <laughs> 2. Bang for Rights podcast at Christmas, it would be over yeah. by, I think Regina's out of the bottle, please. Com you know, that combined with, you know, the, the social media trolling and, you know, the whole thing with Anna Subri and... Yeah. Really, politicians now being, um, you know, publicly humiliated and, and threatened. We're living in very strange times and, um, and maybe where the press is, you know, outwardly reflecting that to some perverse degree. I, th I, think, it's, mm. I think it's what we're seeing is lots of attempts to suppress it. Mm. You know, mm. we've talked about it before on the podcast, but the Cliff Richard case, you know, the reaction mm. to the and the style of coverage of that, I think, was yeah. that bubbling up, mm. not being pushed down by good editorial guidelines. And mm. we see it again and again and again. But you know, as it ever was, the foxification of news, as soon as Fox came on mm. the scene and Satellite News and Sky News when mm. it first came out and then mm. the BBC and that tone has been slowly rising mm. and rising. The whole point, I mean, Rupert Murdoch said that if you don't like the tone of Fox News, well, then it's a free market, go and get your news mm. from somewhere else. And mm. it would be nice to think that there are organisations out there that said we can differentiate ourselves by mm. being a little bit more measured and a bit, a bit more respectful of the debates. Mm. Not any less challenging mm. or anything like that, but it seems like everybody, when they're not checking themselves, just falls foul of that slightly mm. more high-pitched yeah. style of coverage, which, it, yeah. you know, I think we'd all benefit from it in whether that changes or not. Yeah. If we, we come back a little bit to kind of our, our, our reason for being here at all, to be talking about regulation and, and law and so on and, and regulators, two things that we could maybe have a look at um, just specifically, because Jez, you mentioned maybe tougher regulation mm. for, the, for the press, for the printed mm. press might be the way, might be a way forward. So a couple of things. The, the, there have been sketches in the last week of what's in the online harms bill. Mm -hmm. And the, the News Publishers Association came out 
in response to that saying this is potentially going to uh, stop us mm. comment fair fair comment and stop us mm. uh, a restriction on freedom of speech mm. so the government is under a great deal of pressure including from the Cairn Cross Review and the DCMS committee mm. to do something about online harms and there's massive build up of public opinion um, in that direction and yet when the government tries to do something about it to regulate it the news mm. publishers say ah you can't do it mm. so that's one thing and then the other thing is Dave, we were talking off mic before we came on air about the, the European directive now uh-huh. on copyright. Mm. And there too, the publishers are battling against that. There's yeah. been a number of demonstrations around Europe, yeah. even though journalist organisations are in favour of the it. The, the NUJ, the IFG are in favour of it. But there's been quite a lot of people mm. at demonstrations saying we can't have this. It's a, an infringement of freedom of speech. Mm. Where do we go with this? It's a difficult one. And I think it's, co- it's contrary to the whole open source um, ethos of the internet, yeah. isn't it, really? And, you know, um, I, I think it's a very hard one to call, really. I, I, I don't know which way it's going to go. But I, you, you think maybe the, the internet, the way it evolves, it will somehow find a way around it. Um, so I the government's reacting to public uh, opinion, for example, you know, if you think about the death of Molly Russell, um, public opinion is very much we need to regulate this sphere. Um, and of course, they bad laws made in haste journalists get caught in the middle. Um, I mean, you know, thinking about the, the directive from the EU, Google News was said we may have to shut down, you know, you can't, if you, if you introduce a link tax, um, it's going to have massive implications, as you say, Pete, you know, for freedom of speech, people talking about the end of the internet as we know it. Um, but I do see this as part of a movement towards that regulation, which is um, coming into play. I, I, I can see that happening, you know. But Publishers are becoming platformers are becoming publishers. They can have to be held mm-hmm. liable for what they publish um, and consequences. So it's, it's how I mean, you it, yeah, find and it's going to be way. really interesting in this environment where where the UK is withdrawing from Europe yes, and yes. Europe in well in, in the ter- in the in the France and Germany in particular are taking actions now on, against the platforms, but the opinion in the US is moving against that still that kind of general laissez-faire sort of attitude and is Britain going to move on that side of the mm-hmm. Atlantic or stay with the cross-channel opinion well, I, think I don't know it'd be interesting to see how that works out you know the the journalism and media industry has got a very bad track record of engaging with these mm-hmm. debates because it always sets itself in opposition to the internet and the web because it has to because commercial mm-hmm. disruption it, you know its mode of dealing with internet and platform issues was kind of set in 2005, 2006, when it was, this is killing our business model, we must kill it before it kills mm. us. It's still in the fight, how, how, you know, whether it's going to survive the fight or not. But I, I do think going back to the opinion thing and the presentation thing, that's where there's a danger that, on the one hand, you can run live video of somebody killing 50 people mm. on your front page of your news website and think it's okay to do that and then the next day run a front page that blames Facebook. Yeah. And it, you can't have a moral or ethical high ground oh. in that. And I think there's mm. a lot of people within journalism still believe that they do, that they can do that and at the same time honestly turn face and attack a platform yeah. for being responsible for that. And I think if we're not careful, that nuance and that resistance to regulation, and actually I'm, I'm all for light regulation, I do mm-hmm. think as soon as you let politics get involved, we're in trouble mm-hmm. with that. 
But I think it might be one of those things where if we don't make sure our house is in order, mm. then mm. like Facebook and like mm. the other platforms, as a platform ourselves, we're going to be in trouble mm. because we're not going to be able to make a case that we can manage ourselves. We're not going to be able to make the case that what we do is morally and ethically mm. straight because yeah. often we, we publish that. We mm. make it very clear yeah, in black complicit. and white mm. that we don't. Mm. So I think journalism has to seriously think about and media organisations, I think it would help if they thought we're platforms too. Yeah. So if we yeah. demand that of Facebook, and we say Facebook needs to be a publisher, and they're regulated like a publisher, well, hold yeah. on, that means we're regulated the same as Facebook, mm, yeah. and we need to be careful yeah. what we have, yeah. what we wish for. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Shall we start to wind up? Um, yeah. Dave, any, you, any last sort of thoughts on that? Not really, just uh, that it's interesting to see whether we'll still whether articles 11 and 13 will in fact apply to us in two years' time. Exactly. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. Cassandra-like, I don't know. I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, who knows? But we'll, we'll, see what we, we'll see what comes back in the next few weeks about this and whether, and whether we come back, um, because it's, it's obviously something that's going to just carry on burning, mm. um, this, and who knows whether it's going to get better or worse in the coming weeks. Um, but uh, well, thanks very, thanks very much for, for all of that. Um, we remember you can subscribe to Bang to Rights, and please do subscribe to Bang to Rights over the summer. Um, as usual, you will find us on Stitcher. Search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word: MMU Northern Quota. Dave, what can what what's NQ reporting this week? What can people expect if they uh, look we've at the got coverage website? from the, the demo, of course, yeah. which is on, and we've got a, a piece actually about a Manchester company um, who were in breach of the ASA uh, for yes. uh, their um, Brexit. For their Brexit ads. Yeah, very interesting case, to, actually, yes. Out, um, so, um, yes, that, yeah. and then oh, we've got yeah. some football news, all obviously around Man United, who else? So, tune in, so to speak. So thanks very much, Dave. Thanks, Jez. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Um, we have been Bang to Rights. Uh, that's it for this season of the podcast. We will be back after the summer, and I'll be back certainly over the coming months with further episodes, whatever issues or stories come up. And that there's bound to be more from me on Brexit, but there's also a host of stories that we're following in the courts and in the news. So do let us know on Twitter at RightsBang if there are topics or issues from the lectures or from your reading or from your revision that you want us to cover in those future editions. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.